so blessed to be here in the midst of uh, this group of people, this body of believers. Um, I was blessed this evening as I was uh, back there and we were getting ready to get started for tonight. Uh, there's, we get together and pray. And, um, and, and Richard goes to pray and uh, he mentions this place, the word battleground. And like this place is a battleground. And uh, that's so amazing to me because um, tonight's message has something to do with a battle, a battle that happens within us and a a battle that happens outside of us. And so, isn't it so good how when the Spirit is present, there is unity in the body? When the Spirit is present, there is unity in the body. So tonight, we're going to be going into the book of Nahum. And before we go into it, and I give you all this information about it, um, I'm going to tell you a little story. Uh, So the message for tonight, the title is, The Nations Within Us. The Nations Within Us. And so, um, I have a friend, or I had a friend, because I haven't seen her in a long time, but uh, she told me this story once that happened to her. So she... Uh, woke up one morning and went to the bathroom and did all that girls do when they go to the bathroom. Then she looked in the mirror. <laughs> she looked in the mirror. And when she looked in the mirror, she began to rub her forehead because she had something on her forehead and she couldn't understand why. And so she began to rub in hopes that if she can wipe it off as she rubs. But the more she rubbed, the more she realized it wasn't coming off. And the reason it wasn't coming off was because it was her birthmark. So she, in her being sleepy still and trying to wake up, she was still try. She, she didn't realize that that was part of her. And you know, so interesting because sometimes we can be like that with sin in our hearts, sin in our lives. We see the sin in our lives, we see the malice, the unrighteousness, and we try to, as much as possible, in all our power, to get rid of it, to erase it, to take care of it on our own, because we're supposed to be righteous, we're supposed to be holy, we're supposed to be clean, according to the word. There's still this sin, and this sin creates this, this battle within us. But let me tell you, it's okay to have that battle within you. It's okay to have that within you, because that means that if you're in the struggle, you're still in the fight. If you're in the struggle, you're still in the fight. And so, 2 Corinthians 3.18, which is one of my favorite verses, speaks a little bit about this. It speaks about us being made into the image of God. You see, what happens with 2 Corinthians 3.18, what Paul says there, is that when we surrender our lives to the Lord, when we give our hearts to the Lord, what happens is that the veil comes off. The veil comes off. Our eyes are opened, and we're able to see our sin. We're able to see things for what they are. And when that happens, what there begins a process within us and in our lives where we come, where we're being transformed into the same image as the Lord. So when we look into the mirror, 
spiritual mirror. We're to see Jesus and not ourselves. Or we're to see more of him and not all that we used to see before. And so what 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about is this transformation that happens that is step by step, glory from glory to glory. It's not something that happens all at once like that. It would be awesome if that's the way it was, right? I surrender my life to the Lord, I give my life to you, and boom, we're made perfect. There, there's going to be the day when that is going to happen. But according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, what we see that happens is that there's this transformation that needs to happen. And what it speaks about is that really there's this contention within us of what's righteous and unrighteous, what's sin and what's not sin. The Spirit of God that lives in us is doing a work within us to transform us to be more like Him. You see... Spiritually, it's almost like there's nations within us. It's almost like there's nation within us. There's the nation of God, the chosen things within us, the Spirit of God that lives within us. And then there's those nations that are just evil and malice and wicked in us. If you guys um, have been around any children, you don't have to teach a child evil or wickedness, Right? We strive, we live, we, some of us, actually read into how do we educate kids properly? How do we lead the next generation in the proper way? Why? Because sin is within us. Sin is in our nature. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have sinned because sin is within us. And so tonight, as we go into the book of Nahum, um, the name Nahum means comforter. The name Nahum means comforter. And as we go into the book of Nahum, what we're going to see is that it doesn't seem so comforting. It really doesn't seem so comforting. But as we go further into the book, we're going to realize that what God is doing is a, a, a cleansing of a nation that there may be restoration of another. And so the book of Nahum, really as it starts off, if we read verse 1, what it says is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkash. So Nineveh, if you guys remember from the book of Jonah, um, a lot of uh, scholars say that this is a sequel to the book of Jonah because who remembers what happens in the book of Jonah with Nineveh? Anybody? Okay, <laughs> so Jonah runs away, right? God sends him, and just really a quick breakdown because we don't have a, all, that time, all the time in the world, but he runs away, and then he ends up going into the whale's belly, or the fish's belly, I want to say whale, because in children's, to children you always say whale or something like that, but then what ends up happening is that Jonah ends up going where God wants him to go. And he goes to this great city, and he preaches what is... A pa- the partial gospel, right? And they repent. And they repent to his, uh, his, to, to his astonishment. They actually repent and he ends up upset about that. The point being is that Nineveh in the book of Jonah 
repents as a nation. Now, the book of Jonah is said to be written about 150 years before the book of Nahum. Okay, so the book of Nahum is set somewhere around 663 B.C. to 612 B.C. All right, and so around this time what's happening is that Josiah is king of Judah. So the nation of Judah is actually in a good place because of the king that's in place. And um, what we're going to see is that even though even though Judah was in a good place, there was a nation who was a threat. There was a nation who was a fear to all, and that was the nation of Assyria, which Nineveh is a central capital of Assyria. And um, as Pastor Brandon has been uh, teaching and all these other things, you guys know things about Assyria, that they were cruel to their enemies. They were cruel to their prisoners and they as i was reading stuff uh they would cut tongues off they would skin them alive and hang them they would do all these other things in order to say hey you're going to fear me whether you like it or not we are a big nation and we're going to intimidate you one way or another so all these surrounding nations they were fearful of this nation they had fear towards this nation but what we see is that is that god sends a messenger to them. And God, who is long-suffering, goes, uh, sends Jonah to them, and they repent. But here, as we come to Nahum, we're going to see something different. We're going to see that God is going to proclaim His judgment on them, and He's going to describe it, and He's going to say, this is why I'm doing it. Um, but first, before that happens, what, really, what he, Nahum starts with, is with God's character. And that's what most of chapter 1 is. So let's, let's look at that. Let's look at that. So in verse 2 he says, The Lord is jealous and avenging God. So he says the Lord is jealous. And when you first read this, it makes you think, the Lord is jealous. Isn't jealousy like that thing that's supposed to be a sin or something like that? Isn't jealousy supposed to be a bad thing? Why is God jealous? Why is God jealous? And so, um, as you look more into it and, and, and really think about God's character as a whole, what we realize is that God's jealousy is not the jealousy that we have. You see, we become jealous because we do not have something that we think we should have or that we do deserve. God's jealousy is not like that. God's jealousy is because he sees someone who's going to, who is his, and who's going to get hurt by something else, and so he says, I am jealous for them. They are mine, and I want to protect them. Now, some of you guys might be saying, well, I'm kind of jealous that way. But in reality, our jealousy is completely different. Um, and so he says, the Lord is jealous. Why? Because even though the book of Nahum is about Nineveh, in reality, it's more deeply rooted in the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah that's the, la- the one that's standing. 
And so what we see is that he's proclaiming his character because he's saying, I'm jealous and avenging God. You see, the Assyrians had oppressed. The Assyrians had taken advantage of the power that the Lord had allowed them to have. And they had taken advantage of that. And they began to terrorize all the nations, including the nation of Judah. And so if we continue on, he says this, The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is low to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He says, by no means will I clear the guilty. Sin is sin and he calls calls it as it is. This should tell us a lot about how we're supposed to look at sin. How we're supposed to look at unrighteousness. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Why does it say that? It says that because we are to be angry about the things that are unrighteous, the things that don't please God. We're to have God's heart in these things. And so what it says here is that he keeps wrath for his enemies, but he's not going to clear the guilty. Because there's only one that can really clear the guilty, and that's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. He, only has, he is the only one that has died for our sins and has resurrected, having the power to clear us of all of that. So, he continues on and says in the second part of verse 3, His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. So this is what I thought it was really interesting because we can all we can always go back to that memory of when the disciples are on the boat and then the storms come and Jesus ends up rebuking the sea and the sea calms down. He calms the storms. But then attached to the same image here, what he says is that he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. So just like he can rebuke the sea, he can also make it dry. And that's so interesting because there's so much power in that to know that the Lord has control over everything. The Lord doesn't, there's not one thing that the Lord misses. What he's saying is that the Lord can really allow things to happen, but that doesn't mean they get away from him or that doesn't mean that he's missing it. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when we get into situations, when we get into the struggles and sins, uh, or, or with the struggle of sin in our lives, sometimes we feel like, where are you, Lord? Where are you, Lord? Why are you not hearing me? Why are you not listening? Why are you not here? And I want you to know that those are all valid questions that we can have because we're human. But we also should know the truth that God's not one that just allows things to happen for no reason. God's not one that just turns a blind eye on things. And so what he says here is that, continuing on, is that he dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So as we read up to here, we see in 
uh, God's character. He's jealous. He's wrathful. He's all these things, and should make us tremble, right? If we if, if we're on the other side, if we're the nation of Assyria, it should make us tremble. But then, smack in the middle of this text, in verse seven, this is what happens. He says, "The Lord is good." So yes, all these things happen when the Lord is there. Yeah, all, the Lord is jealous, and the Lord is wrathful, and the Lord is vengeful, but He's good. He's good. And that's so important because that should tell us something. It should tell us really that His character is good. His character sets a standard. His character sets a standard for everything that has happened in happening in our in in us that's happening in our lives that's happening in the world that's happening anywhere yes there's going to be tribulation john 16:33 says be a good of good cheer i have overcome the world you will experience tribulation but guess what the lord is good the lord is good and when the Bible says that the Lord is good. It's really setting a standard for everything that happens when we are in relationship with Him. For everything that happens when we are, when He is with us. And so, continuing on, He says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. He knows those who take refuge in Him. This is so important because he knows the ones that are actually truly with their heart worshiping. We can go to church every Sunday. We could do all the practical things, getting the Bible, uh, doing our devos, uh, praying for people, whatever it looks like for you. We can go through all these things, but if our heart's not in it, the Lord knows. If our heart's not in it, the Lord knows. He says that He knows those who take refuge in Him. That's why in the Gospels it says that many will say, Lord, Lord, and He say, I never knew you. I never knew you. And that's a bad place to be. And so it's so important that when He says that He knows those that take refuge in Him, we also see the other side of it. The Lord sees you. The Lord sees us. He sees everything we're doing. If in your heart, you're seeking Him with all your heart, and you're serving Him with all your heart, the Lord sees that. There's not one thing that the Lord misses. And so, in all of this, He starts the book by establishing the Lord's character and who He is. Why? Because what's going to happen next is that He's going to proclaim this judgment that's going to come on them. He's going to describe that judgment and then He's going to say why He judged the nations. How many of you guys know that in, in the moments when we have doubts, in the moments where our faith fails, it's because we forget that the Lord is good. It's because we forget what the Lord has done. It's because we forget that the Lord sees our hearts. At least that's how it is for me. The moments that I struggle the most in believing what God is doing in my life, 
or that God is there in my tribulation, my struggle, my pain, my suffering, whatever it looks like, is, is because I have forgotten His goodness. I have forgotten His character, that He's faithful and that He's good and that He's loving and that everything He does, He does it for a purpose. And so He's laying the groundwork here for the judgment that's going to come. And so, continuing on, he says, but in verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And so he continues to talk about that. So let's skip down to verse 12. He says, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many and many, they will be cut down and, and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So now, that sounds really good, right? Like, I will afflict you, afflict you no more. I have afflicted you, but I'm going to afflict you no more. He's talking to Assyria. And what he's really saying is, though I have afflicted you, I'm not going to afflict you no more because I'm going to destroy you. So there's not going to be any more affliction. You see, affliction is something that continues and something that happens. But when it is completely done, there's no more affliction. It's done. And so what we see here is that he's saying to Syria, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and I will burst your bonds apart. Verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Speaking about Assyria. You see, right about this point is where you begin to wonder why the name of Nahum is called Comforter. Does anybody, anybody be feeling comforted right now? Definitely not, right? But in verse 15, this changes. Because what happens is that he gives hope. He gives a message of hope before giving judgment again. So in verse 15, he says, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So if you guys think about the good news, it should remind you of the gospel. It should take you to Jesus Christ and the work that He did on the cross. And so what He's saying is, though this is going to happen, there is hope that's coming to you, Judah. He's saying, continue in the work that you're doing. Continue doing what you're supposed to be doing, and I'm going to take care of you. Why? Because that is God's character. God's character is when He brings good news. Yes, there's going to be things that He's going to work out. There's going to be things that He has to take care of. But when it comes down to it, there's always going to be that hope. There's always going to be those good news. There's always going to be that result, that fruit that happens. You see, when I say the nations within us, I mean that battle, that struggle that happens between the flesh and the spirit. But when we see God's character and the standard that He has set for us, when we see that, 
then what we hold on to is the good news. And the good news and the God's character and the hope that we find in Him, it's what keeps us going in what we're doing. It's what makes it worth it to wake up every day and keep loving on people and keep doing relationship with the Lord. And so, continue on in verse 2, what's going to happen is that he's going to, verse 2, sorry, chapter 2, what he's going to describe is the destruction, he's going to describe the destruction of Nineveh. Now, to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, um, in the book of Jonah, it talks a little bit about uh, how big the city of Nineveh was. So Nineveh took about three days to walk across. Um, and so now we have some big cities now, right? And we drive across them in like 20 minutes or 10 minutes, whatever it may be. But back then, if you were to walk, it was basically three days to walk across the city. Um, and and uh, as I was looking at certain like uh, scholars and stuff, they were saying that at the time that all this was happening, there was probably about a million people living within the city walls. Now, the, the city walls were huge walls that protected and fortified the city. But these walls were so big that some scholars were saying that you could write, have chariot races around or on top of the city walls, and that's how big and fortified this city was. So the Assyrians were pretty comfortable in that they believed that they couldn't be taken over. But they were right to believe that because um, what uh, history really says is that the Babylonians and the Medes was a new power that arose and began to sweep uh, west. When they came to attack the city of Nineveh, they failed twice before being successful. And so the reason they failed was because they were so well protected. You see, but when there's walls up like that, when there's protection like that, there's nothing that the Lord can tear down because it's the Lord. I mean, the mountains melt before Him. What would some walls do? And so um, history says that uh, the Tigris River ran through the city and across the city. And so... Uh, that was their water source. And what ended up happening is that when the Medes and the Babylonians came and attacked, uh, when they had failed the second time, what happened is that rains came so fiercely that the Tigris River arose and flooded the city, and not only flooding the city, but tearing down some of the walls. Tearing down some of the walls. And what happened was that when the Babylonians and Medes saw that opportunity and the levels went down. The Assyrians didn't have time to repair everything. Then they came in and plundered the city and took over. And so that's what we're going to see in uh, chapter 2. So he says, The scatter has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Notice that he's telling them, you're going to do it because you, couldn't tr- you didn't want to trust in me. So you're going to man the ramparts. You're going to watch the road. You're going to dress for battle. In your strength, you're going to defend yourself and your city. 
And so in verse 2 he says, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So notice, where we see that there's going to be destruction because the Lord is calling judgment, the Lord has a purpose in it. And so then when I say that, yes, the book of Nahum is about the, Nin- uh, the Ninevite city, I think it's well-rooted in that God was doing a work for Judah and in Judah, in the nation of Israel, for His chosen people. And so what we see is that He says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. It's important because God has purpose in devastation. God has purpose in the trials that He allows in our lives. God has purpose in pain, suffering, and so on and so on, whatever you want to put in the blank. You see, Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. He suffered in, on His way to the cross. He suffered on the cross. But there was purpose in that. The Lord does not allow devastation, pain, suffering without purpose. That's just not His character. It's not in Him to do so. And so what we see here is that He begins to describe this destruction that's going to happen, but He says, I have a purpose. Because where there's destruction, there's going to be restoration. And where there's restoration, there's going to be multiplication. I think about in in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, where he talks about um, feeding the 5,000. It says that when the boy gave the bread and the fish, that Jesus, they brought it to Jesus, and he took that, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And what happened after that? What happened when the disciples start to pass it out? It says there was only five loaves. There was thousands of people there. Five thousand. Not counting women and children. It was multiplied. It was multiplied. You see, where there is devastation, the Lord restores. There's restoration. Because He wants to multiply. He wants to multiply. Go with me to Jude verse 3. Jude verse 3. We'll read from verse 1. It says, Jude is servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, sorry, not verse 3, verse 2, he says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied in you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied in you. You see, God wants mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied in us. He wants His Spirit, the fruit of His Spirit, to be multiplied in us. So when God brings us into trials, when God brings people around us that causes pain and suffering, when God is doing all these things in our lives, it's not just because He wants us to suffer and we're supposed to pick up our cross and and follow Him. That's, That's not the point. The point is that He's trying to do something in our hearts because He wants to remove something in order that He may multiply peace, that He may multiply love in our hearts. Why? Because that's what the world most needs. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Why? Because that's what the world most needs. That's what I most needed when I was so far away from God because I didn't want to know Him. I was choosing not to know Him. I needed love. I didn't need rules. I didn't need church. I didn't need all these things. Are those things important to a Christian believer? Yes, absolutely. But what is really important to somebody who doesn't know God, and it should be important to us, is love. The love of God that be multiplied in us. So, what he says here back in Nahum chapter 2, he's saying that he's going to restore There is going destruction that's going to happen. But there's going to be restoration. And so in verse 3, he says, The shield of his mighty men is red. Talking about the Babylonians and the Medes who came together to, um, to sweep west. He says, The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. In the day, he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro. Through the squares they gleam like torches. They they dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breast. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth, of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness went, where... His cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dents with torn, with torn flesh. And so this is in reference to um, how the Assyrians saw themselves. This great mighty power that they could take from anyone for the benefit of themselves. To feed themselves, to add to their wealth. So as I was reading some uh, um, commentaries, they were talking about the king of Assyria and how he had his palace that was 600 feet by 600 feet. And it was full of gold. They had like 50-something rooms and it was full of gold. And when he found out that they had broken through, through the wall, when he had realized that there was no hope, what he did is that he committed suicide. He killed himself. He lit himself on fire. He lit himself on fire and his whole palace and everything burnt down. And so when it says here in verse 9 that they were plundered of their silver, silver and gold, all that gold, all that silver that melted, they just carried it away that way. They just carried it away that way. But it's interesting to see how somebody who had so much power could get to a place where he just says, there's no hope. Because they didn't have their hope and their trust in the right place. They weren't abiding in the right place. 
And so in verse 12, in verse 13, sorry, he says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the word, the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no, shall no longer be heard. You see, he says, I am against you. And I don't know how you guys take in those words. I am against you. But when the Lord when God says, I am against you, those are some heavy words. Those are some heavy words. If my neighbor says he's against me, okay, he's against me. If my mentor says he's against me, hurts, right? If my family say they're against me, then they're against me. But when the Lord, the one that has the power to take life or give life, says, I am against you, that's something serious. That's something serious. And so what we see next is that what the Assyrians, what he's going to tell the Assyrians, I'm going to tell you why it is that I am judging you. And so continuing on, in chapter 3, what we're going to see is like basically a list of things that uh, that are sin, that is sin in their lives. So let's start in verse 1. It says, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. So first and foremost, what they, what the, the reason that he's coming against them is, what is this in verse 1? Woe to the bloody city. They were cruel people. They were cruel people who didn't care about anybody but themselves. You see, sometimes when we read these passages, it's so easy to look at these people and say, wow, they're animals. Wow, they're evil. Wow, they're this. But how hard is it to look at ourselves and say, how are we being towards our neighbor? How are we being toward, uh, toward others? Because I guarantee you, in their eyes, they were so far gone that they didn't realize how evil they were. Or they didn't realize how wicked they were because they were so far gone. But in our walks, the Lord calls us to be holy. The Lord calls us to, uh, to love. The Lord calls us to show His character. How are we doing with the cruelty in our lives? How are we being towards others? And continuing on in verse 4, he says, And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betray nations with their whorings and peoples with her charms. So they were carnal. They were a carnal people. They were people who led, allowed themselves to be led by the flesh. It's not bad. It's, there's nothing wrong with having feelings and feelings of anger and feelings of all these different feelings that aren't pleasant. The thing is, what do we do with those things? You see, Assyria, they had these feelings because at some point they repented. They had these feelings and what they did is they just went with the flesh. Whatever I feel like doing, I'm going to do. It doesn't matter how it affects other nations. It doesn't matter how it affects our nation. They just went with what they thought was good. 
And so what we see is that the second reason um, that he is judging them is because they're carnal, they're fleshly. They want nothing to do with the Spirit of God. And so continuing on in verse um, in verse 8, he says, so we're going to jump down to verse 8. He says, Are you better than thieves that sat by the Nile with a water on her, her rampart, rampart as sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the Libyans were her, were her helpers. She, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of the, every street. For the honor men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. So what we see here is that um, one, of the, one of the other reasons is because of their pride. Their pride led them to think about themselves. Their pride led them to places that uh, maybe at some point they had repented, but then the nation got away from that. And so the Lord, what, so, so as we think about these things, that their cruelty, their carnality or fleshliness, and their pride, what it really comes down to is that they were not abiding in the one who they said they had repented to. You see, they were not abiding in the Lord, because when we abide in the love of the Lord, then we see the fruit of the Spirit. If you guys go with me to John chapter 15, John chapter 15, this is what it says in John chapter 15. It's Jesus, and he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So John, uh, Jesus in chapter 15, what he's saying is that without abiding in his love, without abiding in him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. We, there's no humility. There's no love for others. There's no love for His people. And so we see that the Assyrians didn't have that. And so the Lord judges them because of that. The Lord judges them because of that. And so what we see basically from uh, verse 11 all the way to verse 16 is that he continues to speak about their pride, he continues to speak about their cruelty, and he continues to speak about their demise and how they're going to be destroyed. Um, and so we're going to jump to verse 17. In verse 17, he says, Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. He's speaking about their leadership. He's speaking about their princes and how when trouble came, they scattered. Has anybody ever tried to catch a grasshopper? It's like they just jump, right? They just keep going and they can't be grasped. And so that's what he's saying there. And finishing up here in verse 18, he says this, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. 
Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. It's interesting because he talks about shepherds here. He talks about nobles and then he talks about the people. So the shepherds, he says, are asleep. The shepherds are asleep. The people who are supposed to be leading, or the leaders who are supposed to be leading the people in the righteous way, the people who are supposed to be leading and caring for the people are asleep. The nobles slumber and the people are scattered. People are scattered because they have no one to lead them. So there's division. There's a scattered people there. You see, when we um, choose not to trust in the Lord, when we choose not to trust in the Lord, we won't find contentment in where He has us at. And what happens is that we become lazy. What happens is that we become lazy. When we trust in the Lord... And where He has us at, the place in life, the season that He has us in, then what happens is that we allow ourselves to be content in what He is doing in us. What He is doing in that moment. You see, the Assyrians, they were, their trust wasn't in the Lord. Their trust was in their power. Their trust was in their uh, uh, wealth. Their trust was in their fortified city. The trust was on them. And what ends up happening is that when their trust wasn't in the Lord, they weren't content with anything. So they would take, 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 and nothing ever satisfied them because they continued to take and take and take until the Lord said, it is enough. You see, Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 Verse 31 through 34, he's talking, he's, uh, he, they get to the town of Samaria. And so basically, uh, as soon as they get there, they've been walking for a while. The disciples run off and they go and they get food in town somewhere. They come back and they, 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 they're asking Jesus if he wants food or he, they want to give Jesus food. But Jesus gives this answer that makes them wonder and leaves them wondering. He says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Why was Jesus able to do that? Even though He was probably hungry because He was human, He was able to do that because He found His contentment in the Lord. He found His contentment in where the Lord had Him. You see, when we find our contentment in the Lord, it doesn't matter what job we have. It doesn't matter what friends we have. It doesn't matter what material things we have doesn't matter because if the Lord wants to give, He's going to give. If the Lord wants to take away, He's going to take away. That's because we find our contentment in Him. And so to wrap it all up, to wrap it all up, see, there was a nation of Judah who God was beginning to start a process of restoration. But before He could start that process of restoration... He needed to judge Assyria for what they were doing. At the end of this, uh, verse 19, it says, 
for uh, all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Why? Because as long as Assyria was standing, all the other nations feared Assyria, feared what could happen to them. And so, in a similar manner, there's these nations within us. There's the Spirit of God that's alive and well, but there's also that sin that still, until we are face to face with Jesus, is still going to be a struggle in our lives. And so there's these nations that are contending. But the only thing that overcomes our sin, the only thing that can remove that sin from us is the Lord. It's the love of the Lord that lives in us. A lot of times we try to do it in our strength. If I pray more, if I read more, if I do more, but all we're doing is doing more and more and more, and the sin's still there. You see, the love of the Lord is what draws us to abide in Him. The love of the Lord is what drives us to do according to His will and to find contentment in Him. And so when we allow that love to do the work in us, then we will find that contentment. We will be cleansed of our sin in, in that manner and be able to find that joy that is only found in Him.